1: This is Talk of the Devils, the athletics podcast dedicated to Manchester United. I'm Ian Irving and with us along for the ride today, Buckle Up, Andy Mitten and Laurie Whitwell. We've got a packed podcast on the way. We'll have the latest on Manchester United's search for a new manager, whether the Glazers have delivered on their promises, the Old Trafford Stadium redevelopment argument, Manchester United's women's team making history this weekend and we'll also be previewing a big night for some Reds in the World Cup qualifiers tonight. And it's been impossible to escape you two this week. Particularly you, Andy. Your face was on every screen I saw talking about Manchester United maybe getting a new manager sometime soon.
2: How many screens were you looking at? I did one interview for Sky and and a, a load of radio, and um I got abuse for doing the one-off Sky because I looked absolutely knackered. No, oh. It wasn't that it wasn't that abuse, it was just it was just a heckle. <laughs> You're looking radiant today,
3: Andy, I must
2: say. It's a very
1: nice hoodie, isn't it? Very bright. What colour would you describe that as, Andy?
2: I'd say it's the colour of um, Bruce Dortmund's top or Sheffield United's away top from uh, the early 90s.
1: I was going to go lollipop Lady Laurie. What were you going
3: for? <laughs> reminds me of some kind of ice cream that I've had on a hot summer's day where I have really need to cool down so it's it's making me smile at least
1: <laughs> yes it is Andy sort of teased it there Laurie you've been reporting for several weeks along with David Ornstein on The Athletic that Eric Ten Hag was going to be one of the men that Manchester United spoke to about the vacant managerial post it sounds like he has been spoken to now can you add anything to this what's the latest
3: as reports have surfaced this week, there's been an interview with Eric ten Hag, um, and you know it's not the case that that therefore means that he's got the job at all. Um, it's uh, an open field still. Um, clearly, United are making moves now. I wrote in the piece after. Uh, that went out to Atletico Madrid. That this was a time, a unique opportunity, really, for Manchester United to go about their work very diligently to do all the background checks that they needed to do without a game, you know, to to on the calendar, without uh, an incumbent manager being put out by that. You know, they got Ralph Raniukis. Interim, he knows that he's off at the end of the season, so this is obviously a time where they're going about their work uh, diligently. It's you know there's obviously Mauricio Pochettino is on the shortlist as well, um, Julian Lopetegui and Luis Enrique, the four uh, that we've been told about. I mean, as David Ornstein reported in January, this was. So this is kind of you know finally uh, coming to fulfilment. Um, but speaking to people close to United, you get the sense that you know, they do want to take the time. It's not necessarily something imminent. So, you know, keep your eyes peeled, I suppose. But yeah, there's, there's developments that are happening, which is what you want to see because United do want this wrapped up before the end of the season because you have got questions which we'll get onto about players, their futures, potential signings. It's uh, it's something that they can't have sort of dragging on for too long. Andy, what have you made of the wave of support for Eric Ten Hag on
1: Twitter? I mean, just taking Gary Neville's account in isolation, uh, he did a poll which has had nearly... 220,000 votes at the time of recording. 82% went for Eric Ten Haag compared to 18% for Mauricio Pochettino. He seems the clear choice for United fans online at least.
2: Yeah, I'm surprised at how emphatic it was. This is a poll being taken when the mood is completely on the floor and he seems like the shiniest option. Someone who can lead Manchester United into a brighter future and everything will be fine. He's clearly done a very good job at Ajax, he's the one person who United have definitely spoken to. United have spoken to others as well. They've not spoken to all of the people on the shortlist yet. United began making real contacts a month ago. United want the manager to be in position for the summer because players who Manchester United have been targeting, not unreasonably, have been saying, well, who is going to be. The manager next season it's slightly complicated because some of the candidates are contracted Eric Ten Hag obviously is contracted to Ajax Amsterdam but I think there's an acceptance there certainly among Ajax fans that their best talents move on you couldn't say exactly the same thing about some of the other uh, candidates with Ten Hag I can see that He's unblemished in so much as when you look at Mauricio Pochettino, who's very highly rated in some quarters, by the way. I know he's fallen out of favour this week online with some fans, but I know some serious hitters who think that he would be a really good fit. You cannot level the same things at, at Ten Hag as you can at Pochettino. You've not won anything in the Premier League after all the, the these years. And it just seems that... His team play exciting football, his his CV is a a good one. And it makes me laugh all the time to the first time I saw his team and did some background on him and all the Ajax journalists were saying he's going to be sacked here if he doesn't win this game tonight. And I thought, well, he's going to get sacked then because it's against Real Madrid and they're the European champions. And then they absolutely blitzed Real Madrid. It's a funny old world, isn't it?
1: It is, yeah. And Adam Crafton as well tweeted a, a really interesting point that Eric Ten Hag's actually older than Mauricio Pochettino, which is not really the the impression that you get, Laurie, is it, to be honest?
3: No, it's a good point, and I suppose it just enforces perhaps that United's pool of candidates isn't quite at uh, the, the elite elite. It's not got the guarantee of they've done it elsewhere. They're coming in with a, a massive pedigree. Clearly Ten Hag's done very well at Ajax. You know, he's won titles, he's played brilliant football. He's knocked out some big teams in Europe. He's rebuilt the team you know, after having major sales to his squad. But it's been in Holland and it's a different thing doing that at Manchester United. Micho Pochettino has gone to different clubs and had success. Um, clearly the PSG thing is a, a unique circumstance, I suppose. We've seen that Thomas Tuchel didn't really succeed there I know he got to the Champions League final but ultimately his tenure perhaps was seen in an underwhelming light and he's gone to Chelsea and won the Champions League and he's seen as this incredible candidate that you know United have looked at his situation could something happen there with Chelsea as remote as that might, might seem so it is interesting sort of people's perceptions of things um, and I sort of made that point in the piece Atletico Madrid um, where I sort of said that you know when Man City got Pep Guardiola He'd come in with like 18 major titles, won Champions Leagues, won domestic leagues in two different countries. When Liverpool got Jurgen Klopp, he had um sort of wrestled um beyond the financial might of Bayern Munich in Germany so that Dortmund could win the title twice and made the Champions League final. So they they kind of had got to a level already before they were appointed at these English clubs. Um, where the, you sort of knew what they were bringing. There's, there's a little bit of the unknown about, I guess, both Pochettino and Ten Hag in terms of managing a club, the style of United. Um, and, and both those guys, you know, Klopp and Guardiola, you felt like they were still on an upward curve. So you, you, I guess you get that sense with... Hopefully both Pochettino and Ten Hag, but it isn't quite as clear-cut as you know these are guys at the start of their careers or even in the midpoint of their careers that they have, you know, been coaches for a long, long time.
1: Okay, of course, get your eyes peeled on the Athletic for the very latest on Manchester United's hunt for a new boss. We're going to move it on now because Laurie a piece has dropped just earlier on today, actually, a few hours ago, that you've written um, reflecting nearly a year on from the European Super League plot the failed European Super League plot and all the protests and everything else that, that came after that. And of course, in the aftermath as well, the pledges that were made by Joe Glazer, that United would engage across all the issues raised following that Super League plot. And you've analysed exactly what's happened.
3: What has happened? The idea of the piece was to kind of look at the five points that must raised um, when the Super League collapsed, you know, they, they sort of saw that moment as a pivotal one to make some um, proposals to the club or demands, I suppose, you, you might go as far to say. Um, and Joel Glazer responded a week later with this open letter where, you know, he said he'd engage across all of them. So I took that as a, OK, you, you're, you're you're agreeing to all those points, really. I know he hasn't actually mapped out, his, in his own words, those those things. So that was the bounce-off point. And then obviously this week must have, have come out pretty strongly on the fan-share scheme, uh, being not what they are willing to accept and, and kind of setting a deadline really in terms of the anniversary of the Super League which is April um, for a resolution to it which is an interesting tactic it'll be, it'll be kind of intriguing to see how Joel Glazer sort of responds to that but yeah there, there was sort of five points raised by Must uh, one, in terms of the club engaging with the government-initiated fan-led review of football, which is uh, Tracy Couch's review, which was released in November. A second point was to appoint independent directors to the board, whose sole purpose is to protect the interests of the football club. Third point being to work with the supporters' trust to put in place a fan share scheme. So that's the kind of crucial thing that they're, they're in discussions out about at the moment. The fourth point in terms of consulting with season ticket holders on any significant changes to the future of the club. Um, So obviously that would be if they had any kind of ideas to do something like the Super League again, ideally season ticket holders would be consulted. And and this is probably one of the main points in terms of what Manchester United have actually done already. So they've created the Fan Advisory Board, which is seven fan representatives, voluntary basis. They meet quarterly, uh, discuss with senior leaders at the club, about the issues at the club. Um, they've only had one so far, which is in January, which Joel Glazer did attend. Uh, three hours of conversation, so, so robust discussion back and forth. I think the the initial discussion was about how it might work in, in future, sort of laying out the groundwork. So, you know, the proof is in the pudding on this as to whether change is actually enacted. Just going back to the points, the final one was in terms of the costs that incurred uh, in relation to the withdrawal of the Super League. So, you know, the fines that Premier League gave, the fines that UEFA gave. And, I mean, Joel Glazer did commit to paying those personally, as it's happened, you know, for example, in UEFA's case anyway, there's a court case ongoing. So those those fines have been paused anyway. So it's kind of a, a little bit of a moot point. For me, the fan advisory board is the most significant thing that's actually happened. And, and my point in the piece uh, a little bit is also talking about communication. And clearly he has communicated with these seven fan representatives. He also attended two different fan forums. The first one was kind of quite an emotionally charged episode where it was basically a lot of fans telling him how they felt. The second one was more dialogue. Um, but we don't see this, do we? It's not like he's given an interview to, to broadcast media. It's not like he's done an interview with a newspaper. Um, it, you know, So this is all kind of behind the scenes. So I would still argue that his point where he, he said, this is sort of separate to the points raised by a Must, but you know Joel Glazer came out and basically said he understands the silence that they've had for the past sixteen years hasn't been the right approach, and you know he wants to give the correct impression in terms of what he says about his his love for the club, but you know you have we haven't seen that, have we because there's been nothing publicly okay it's It's sort of fair enough that he's doing this privately, but I think to really address that point specifically. Yeah, something publicly should be done.
1: Yeah, fundamentally, public-facing-wise, nothing really has changed, has it, since that? And I think we all expected that to be one of the things that was addressed because, like he said, the silence had been interpreted as them um, caring more about balance sheets than score lines. Um Andy, in terms of the fan-share scheme, that's become front and centre now of this, really, and it seems to be the issue that is really going to decide how serious the Glazer family are about the commitments that they've made, how this goes. Is that fair?
2: Yeah. It's, and it's taking too much time and that's why fans are growing in their concerns. There's a lot of resentment towards the Glazer family at the moment, partly because the results have been bad as well. That always affects the mood. And when if Manchester United were going for the treble now, then it, this would become a sideshow. But United are miles off that level, partly because the owners and Fans are not happy. Must are getting a lot of criticism as well. It's frustrating for Must uh, from their perspective. They need to come away with something which can be sold to Manchester United fans as being tangible to the majority of United fans. Because you'll also have a lot of Manchester United fans who just want the Glazers to go, end of. They might not have a plan B beyond that. They just want the the Glazers to go. And it's difficult for Must. It's difficult for the negotiations because Manchester United are publicly listed, Um, so there's various areas which can't be made public. But my overriding feeling is, what have you delivered since you made those comments? And that year anniversary is coming up to the Super League and the subsequent protests, and I think something tangible has got to be delivered, which is acceptable to a large number of Manchester United fans. Some United fans are always going to find fault. And I think if that means must walking away, if they don't get what they want, then so be it. I think must have got quite a strong hand to play. And if it comes to that, then so be it. And I think the the, the Glazers know that as well. And there's all sorts of side issues which will be subject to non-disclosure um, details as well. But the bottom line is we're nearly at a year and nothing has happened on the main thrust of things. If
1: you want to read more about this issue, of course, go to The Athletic and have a look at Laurie's piece, which, like I say, dropped earlier on. Andy, you've had a piece on there this week as well about redeveloping Old Trafford or even demolishing Old Trafford and starting again. Um, It's obviously been an issue that's been around for a few years now, really, but that's come to the surface and that's become a key issue, really, that Manchester United fans are keeping a close eye on too. Your argument is that it should be redeveloped uh, and improved as opposed to being completely knocked down and, and rebuilt. Why is that?
2: That's my opinion and I spoke to a lot of people and I've been writing about Old Trafford since 1989. I've been writing about this subject for a long, long time. Uh, Richard Arnold's quotes are in that piece. They were given from 2018. They still stand true now, but nothing's been done. And this is, a lot of this is, it's on the Glazers. The, the The progress and the redevelopment of Old Trafford lies squarely at the foot of the Glazers. And I said that Old Trafford had often been ahead of the game in terms of stadium development and has stood still. And it drove me mad as a United fan. You want pride in your home. And it baffled me that... The, the, the girders were peeling above the stand. And I said to Richard Arnold, can, can someone just not paint these? And some development has been done uh, in, in lockdown. The disabled facilities have been expanded. You know, We're talking tens of millions here, but not a major development. And all along, rivals have even been playing catch-up by expanding their own homes. Liverpool's the best example of that. And Liverpool did what United are doing now. They did that in the noughties. They lost a whole decade uh, because... They weren't sure whether they were going to move to a new ground on Stanley Park or not. Everton have obviously got a move. Manchester City are expanding. Arsenal, Tottenham, they needed to move because their footprint at their old homes was very small. United, Old Trafford already old, 74,000. And I would favour something more like I'm seeing in Madrid or at Barcelona what's due to happen. And that is a major redevelopment of what is fundamentally still a very good football ground and that would be expanding the self-stand so that it's more symmetrical with the rest of the stadium. The roof's a problem. I know people talk about it leaking. That's not the the, the main issue. It's It swoops too low. It's grey. It doesn't add anything aesthetically to the stadium. It was built too low because light wasn't getting to the pitch at the time when it was built. That's all changed now. And I think the outside of the, the stadium as well, it looks it's not attractive, especially compared to the the best new builds. And stadium technology has moved on a lot. So if you go to Bilbao or to Tottenham or to Munich, when you see these, you go, wow. And some people still go, wow, at Old Trafford. And I was speaking to Atletico Madrid fans last week, and they were going, wow. So it's quite interesting to see from their eyes. And I'm sure I, I, one of the best feelings in my entire life was walking into the ground as the first time as a kid. And just seeing this green, it was just the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. And that was an ugly stadium around it at the time. I'm not totally against the idea of a new build, but as I understand, and I did my research and I've been on top of this subject for a long time, it is possible, might be expensive, might be prohibitively expensive. So it might not be possible to build above the south stand. You've got the railway behind it. If you're putting a, a bridge or a tunnel over a railway, that becomes quite complicated for all sorts of issues, not least security if you've got trains going through tunnels. The concourses are a problem at Old Trafford. They're, they're very dated as well. There's no big screens. Some fans want Wi-Fi, and that's understandable as well. Some journalists want Wi-Fi. There wasn't, there wasn't Wi-Fi in the press box until 2018. That's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. I travel everywhere and go in press boxes where the Wi-Fi worked except at Old Trafford, and you need to do your job. It was it was mental. I think the main thing here is it's got to be done. No more saying we like this idea. Them quotes from Richard Arnold are already four years old. Do it. And for some people who who would say, and I got a bit of stick when I wrote the first ones, it's, never mind the ground, we need to be buying players. You do that separately. Madrid and Barcelona take out separate loans which are serviced against guarantee of future incomes. Madrid think they're going to get another £150 million a year from their new home. Slightly bigger capacity, a lot more executive areas lots of office space, hotel museums, and look at where Old Trafford is, look at the area around it, it's becoming more desirable. Look at all the apartments going up by Salford Keys. Manchester United own a lot of land. So it's an opportunity for a major redevelopment, make the whole of the Stratford End standing, and I feel that United could do that, and add in your exec facilities to pay for everything... But it's going to take time as well. This is a multi-year project. The main thing is get cracking on it now or very soon. Don't want to be having this conversation in ten years because the glazers have refused again to commit to a long-term uh, planning.
1: Yeah, it's another symbol, like I said before, Laurie, isn't it? To see exactly what's done, and um, it's a symbol of what the commitment is and and all the promises and all the all the words that that came out sort of this time last year. This is a way of judging it, isn't it?
3: Usually. I mean, everything takes a long time with the Glazers, you know, because it has to go to America. Joel often wants to know the finer details of things and prevarication. So you'd hope though, that actually, as Andy says so eloquently, I thought that was brilliant, Andy, in terms of the detail that you went into there, but you want to see signs of progression because it's all very well having talk about plans and projecting things that are going to happen in the future. And the fact that, yeah, these are big projects, so they will take time, but you know, Time is now, I am leaning towards your viewpoint, Andy, in terms of keeping old Trafford as the main stadium because I think there's still some, still something magical about playing at a on the place on the patch of grass that so many memories have been forged before you know in that same space rather than go somewhere new, even if it 's sort of adjacent you know in the car park you know next to where the actual stadium is there 's still something magical about that and I agree with you, uh, speaking to a colleague, Matt Slater, last night and, and he took his son to Old Trafford recently and he, his son was wowed by the first time he saw Old Trafford. So I do think we can get um, a little bit grey around the edges on our own experiences because we've seen it so many times. But for, for some people new, new to the ground, it is still pretty spectacular, but it, it does look tired in places. They have to renovate it. They have to make it up to modern standards. I don't know, what do you think, Ian? Have you got a kind of preference either way. I think the point
1: about wanting to play on the same patch of grass in the same area is a great one. Yes, obviously knocking it down and starting again probably would be easier because you wouldn't have to deal with the, the train line and all the other aspects. But I think a huge issue for Manchester United would be if they did knock it down, where would they play? That There's absolutely no obvious solution like London clubs have had going to Wembley to a neutral ground. I don't have a clue where Manchester United would end up playing their games while uh, the stadium was potentially not... You know, in that in-between stage where the old stadium wasn't fit to, to house games and neither was the, the new part. So I think finding a solution on the same plot of land and redeveloping. The technology has moved on so much as well since United last did anything to the stadium. So um, there's detail in Andy's piece about that as well. The, the idea that it's possible now to build on the plot of the South Stand, uh, whereas it wasn't in the past. So it's something to keep an eye on definitely undoubtedly it's a it's a symbol like we say of the of the owner's commitment what exactly is done to the stadium i think the training ground as well is another aspect because we've seen so many clubs across europe but even in the premier league even in our own city in fairness in manchester you look at what manchester city have achieved with the with the redevelopment and and the of the stadium but also the, the complete transformation of that area as well with the the Etihad Campus and and the, and the CFA, that the facility there is world class, and United are competing with that in their own city. Let alone other clubs across the country and in Europe as well, who have who have also invested. I mean, I remember the first time I went to Real Madrid's training ground, and it's like a town. You know, it's got its own junction off the motorway. It's got its own police force. The place is absolutely unbelievable. You know, and I'm not saying Carrington is poor. It, it, it's 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 World class in aspects, but you look at the scale and 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 th- how impressive somewhere like Real Madrid's training ground is. um And if you want wanting to be in the bracket of the, of the biggest and best clubs in the world, that's that's your level, Andy, isn't it?
2: Well, if you're talking training grounds, Manchester United no longer have the best training ground. It, Carrington's an eight out of ten training ground. You've got porter cabins there. I put that to Ed Woodward two years ago. I said you've got coaches training in porter cabins. And he looked at me in the eye and said, I'm surprised you know that. It's my job to know this sort of things. It shouldn't be happening. And it shouldn't be happening. And Tottenham have got a better training ground than Manchester United. Manchester City have got a better training ground. Liverpool have moved. Everton have moved.
1: Leicester even. I went to Leicester's training ground last week to interview Brendan Rodgers. It's like something out of the Teletubbies. It's unbelievable. It's got a nine-hole golf course on it. I mean, this is Leicester. This is a team who, yeah, okay, they've won the Premier League title. But budget-wise, size-wise, support-wise, whatever metric you want to use, in theory, United's training ground should be be blowing Leicester's out of the water, shouldn't it?
2: Yeah, Leicester's, I think, was 100 million development. And again, it's United doing stuff uh, piecemeal. So there was an issue five years ago at the training ground. We've not even got floodlights, one contact told me. It's ridiculous. And they get done as small jobs. So the training ground needs to be done. I think one thing to United's credit is that the cliff has not been sold off. Liverpool sold off Melwood, uh, Manchester City with Platte Lane, Everton with, with their old training ground. And I'd love to see the cliff used. But again, I was having these chats four or five years ago. Could Could the cliff be used for the women's team? I don't know the answer to that. But look into it and do it. Don't just talk about it. Don't send it back to America five times. Get it done. It's bizarre that Manchester United's women's team are playing at Lee, 12 miles from Manchester, a town with no train. It should be next to Old Trafford if possible. Manchester City have got the 6,000 reserve team stadium next to their ground. Barcelona have got a 6,000 capacity reserve team stadium on their training ground. Real Madrid have got a 6,000 capacity reserve team stadium on the training ground. Manchester United are renting a rugby ground 12 miles out of the city that they play in and all of these things give you a picture of Manchester United under the glazers in isolation lee sports village is fine but it's manchester united it's not even that expensive to build a 6000 capacity stadium we're not talking about building above railway lines and building uh, massive triple decker stands where you you need increased security it should be a relatively small job and United now need to play catch-up, but should never have been put into this position anyway.
1: Okay, if you want to read more about this topic as well and Andy's take on the redevelopment of Old Trafford, that's on The Athletic at the minute. Remember, you can subscribe to The Athletic if you're not already a subscriber. For just £1 a month for the first six months, go to theathletic.com forward slash Man United pod. You get full access to all our great Manchester United writing and ad-free versions of all The Athletic's podcasts as well, including, of course, Talk of the Devils. That's theathletic.com forward slash Man United pod.
0: Sign up now.
1: Okay, Manchester United's women's side will make history later this week by playing at Old Trafford in front of fans for the very first time in their history when they take on Everton in the Women's Super League there on Sunday. Charlotte Harper is the Athletic's newly appointed women's football correspondent. Congratulations first, Charlotte, and thank you for coming on Talk of the Devils. This is a monumental day for the club, isn't it?
4: It's huge. Uh, It's huge for the club, uh, the players, uh, their families, and most importantly, the fans, and and we didn't have the fans uh, last year.
1: No, of course, United have played there before, uh, but like you say, it was behind closed doors, wasn't it? It's it's crazy in a way, do you not think that it's taken this long to have a women's match at Old Trafford with fans?
4: Yeah, I think, you know, the team was only... Reformed and well, newly introduced in 2018, and they were in the championship then. Um, So, you know, they've come a long way from playing at Champions Grounds to now Old Trafford. There, There have been suggestions among people that it was a bit of a token gesture last year. Especially as it couldn't be broadcast. MUTV used up all their three picks, so it ended up just being on the on the FA player. Casey Stoney previously said that the priority is to sell out Lee Sports Village first, get that core fan base and then go to Old Trafford. But you know, the fact that we've got it on Sunday against Everton, hopefully the sun's shining and you know, you're going to inspire a new set of fans that probably haven't seen the women play
1: before. It's a great way of attracting supporters, though, as well, Andy, isn't it? I mean, a lot of United fans would be attracted to a game at Old Trafford more so than the Lee Sports Village, for some of the reasons, Charlotte, that we were just talking about a moment ago.
2: Yeah, it's Old Trafford and all the excitement that comes with that. I think it's a, a fantastic idea. It is a long, long way from when I first reported on a Manchester United's women's team in 1996 on a grass pitch in Stockport, with no spectator facilities whatsoever. And it all points towards increasing influence, increasing coverage of of the women's game. I see it with my own family. My my two daughters are seven and 11. They've got really into football in the last six months. And I'm going to take them next week to watch Barcelona against Real Madrid ladies. And they have sold 92,000 tickets. And they are beside themselves with excitement. And you mentioned on the fan culture, Manchester United's women's team, they've got, a fan culture already. There are people who go to all the home and away games. They've got the flags and I think that's really good. They've got a fanzine and I think that if that continues to grow then it can only be a good thing. I hope there's a huge crowd at Old Trafford. Everyone enjoys it and Manchester United win by at least five clear goals and anything less than that will be a massive disappointment.
1: Where are we up to on on ticket sales? Do we know for this game? At
4: least 25,000 tickets sold. A couple of days to go so hopefully we'll get more of an exact number
1: yeah, and tickets are still available on Manchester United's website if you are interested in getting down to cheer on the team. Um, let's talk about the media there then. Who did you speak to and what did they have to say about this match? I'm guessing there's a, there's a huge excitement around the squad.
4: I got to speak to Katie Zellum and she was describing how she was a Champions League flag bearer when she was 11, complaining that she had to practice and then realised it was quite difficult. Um, <laughs> Alessia Russo, um, her family uh, you know, massive United supporters and and she was very much focused on getting the job done. Mary Earps, England goalkeeper as well, and of course England uh, are going to be playing in their Euro opener at Old Trafford come the summer. Um, And then Diane Caldwell, um, new signing in January, and she described herself as a die-hard United fan. She used to do the stadium tours, museum tours. I think it was quite strange for them to see uh, the posters around Old Trafford and a big bill- billboard, that was just not possible. That didn't enter their minds. And the fact that they were there as fans as a child and now they're stepping onto the pitch, it just, it wasn't possible for them. They didn't see it. It was a dream in the fact that it didn't seem as though it could be reality.
1: The one point on the match at the weekend as well, Charlotte, it's a really important game for Manchester United as well. There's no sense of this just being an exhibition. It's a game they need to win.
4: Yeah, it's huge. Five games to go, they need three points keep kind of distance between themselves and City. Their uh, level on points with City, they're only kind of superior by a goal difference. That was very much the message, focus on the performance. They were disappointed last year. It was quite a cagey first half against West Ham. And Mary Earps was saying that uh, some of the players felt it. It was like, whoa, this is big. <laughs> this is intimidating. So I think last year was treated as a dress rehearsal and this year she said hopefully it'll be more familiar and they'll be able to put in a really good performance and and that is their priority. Because they've been
1: having a great season as well, haven't they? Uh, I don't know what the expectation was exactly coming into this campaign but to be in contention to qualify for the Champions League feels like a step forward considering all the changes that Manchester United had last summer. Uh, They've obviously had ambitions of that in the past but considering they lost the manager... I think we were talking at the start of the year when Mark Skinner came in about how difficult the job he had to try and continue the great work of Casey Stoney, considering the issues that the the women's team had suffered.
3: I just wondered what how, how you felt the media day went, Charlotte, You know, in terms of the people that you spoke to. I know you said that they perhaps um, felt a little bit intimidated by the stadium itself. So obviously with fans in this time, it's perhaps going to be another step up, but... Do you sense that there's going to be more of these occasions in future? I mean, clearly it's the international break, so there's an opportunity to play at Old Trafford and have eyeballs on this game, aside from Manchester United elsewhere. But do you get a sense that this could be the the start of a regular thing?
4: Yeah, and I spoke to the players about that. I think that was their first media day that they'd done at Old Trafford as well. So a lot of firsts being uh, ticked off. Arsenal played Wolfsburg on Wednesday evening in the Champions League at the Emirates. So if United can get that Champions League spot. That will be huge for them next season. And I don't see why they can't grow a consistent fan base at Lee and then use Old Trafford for those kind of prestige events. Schedules are going to clash. That's inevitable. But um, I think as Arsenal have done it with Emirates or Tottenham, Using their stadium as well, I don't see why you can't you can sprinkle Old Trafford appearances throughout the season as well.
1: Charlotte, it's been great to have you on. Thank you very much for previewing that match. Where there's a brilliant occasion in the history of Manchester United, and you can read Charlotte's piece building up to Sunday's game on the Athletic on
0: Friday. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more.
1: Okay, uh, a slight apology. I think this probably should be phrased as, but we're not going to do the second part of the Manchester United squad stock check on this podcast. We're going to do it next week instead now. Of course, it's the attacking players that we're going to focus in on next after doing the defensive. side of things on the last podcast so it'll be out next week and still keep your eyes peeled it will come it's not going to be like the lee sharp article i promise there will be a post on the real time section of the athletic app asking you for your opinions on the state of manchester united squad and we'll read some of the best messages out when we do the stock check on the podcast next week right we need to round up any other business then because There's still quite a lot going on for Manchester United, despite it being the international break.
3: Laurie, what stood out to you? Paul Pogba's interview, uh, whilst he was away with France, I mean, um, as people might say, it's not an international break if Paul Pogba doesn't speak uh, to local media away with France. Different this time though, isn't it? This felt a lot more cathartic maybe, open, open talked about a lot of topics. I mean, the burglary aspect, you know, we kind of, we it can become trite, can't it? When you say, oh, player gets burgled, you know, it happens frequently and that's sad and you move on. Well, actually, you know, Paul Pogba was talking about how, you know, his two children were in the house uh, with his nanny whilst he was playing against Atletico Madrid. Clearly he'd been targeted knowing that he'd be out of the house at that point with his wife, speaking openly about the terror that he felt, you know, and the fact that that's where your mind goes to, not, not your, you know, World Cup medals that obviously were in the house at the time, but to your children. So I do think that that has, it was it was kind of good, you know, it was interesting to hear, you know, we ask for players to be open and full of personality when they do these interviews, So we can't then dismiss when they are like that, and they are quite bearing their soul, so to speak, because there was obviously other aspects to it in terms of, him feeling that he'd not really had a role at United, you know, the fact that he's it's not gone well for him for the last five years, the fact that this season's dead, he called it.
1: Saying that he suffered depression while he was under Jose Mourinho as well was
3: was a real headline from that interview. Luke Brown's written about it on The Athletic. I wonder how much he opened up to the club. I wonder how much the club kind of asked and, and felt how, you know, asked how he was doing. It'll be interesting to see if there's any more conversations once he gets back from France duty because he, he comes across as a very happy-go-lucky guy, doesn't he? I think everyone that's a teammate of his speaks warmly of him because he is bright, you know, he's sunny. The, the things you can criticise him for are perhaps being um, sort of too much that way possibly in, in when it really gets to the meaty end of seasons, is is he there? Does he stand up? And I think you can debate those points, but I think everyone who's met him can say, actually, he's a a really good guy. So for him to sort of say that he'd been touched by depression was, was clearly quite a stark thing. And I guess you wouldn't say it in the moment, perhaps because you want to crack on and kind of keep your head down and try and do your best. But, and at the time, I suppose also United were a little bit of loggerheads with him, you know, as a club with his desires to leave, you know, perhaps this kind of stuff doesn't get discussed. So, um, But I thought it was, you know, an interesting interview and perhaps gives us a little bit of an indication as to what will happen at the end of the season.
1: Yeah, Pogba has spoken while on international duty. The matches for France not quite as important as the Portugal match tonight, their World Cup qualifier against Turkey, Andy. I mean, Cristiano Ronaldo, Bruno Fernandes, Diogo de Lowe could all be in the Portugal team later on. But for Ronaldo, considering United are up against it to qualify for the Champions League... His country are up against it to qualify for the World Cup. It'd be an absolute disaster for him if he was to miss out on both of those. Even one of them would be a disaster probably in his mind.
2: We all thought that Cristiano would be a certain type of player for Manchester United this season and it was a guarantee that it's going to work out. I don't think the guarantee came true. In certain games there has been, in certain games absolutely not. It's I think the international players are somewhat relieved to get away from the club football at the moment. And you could say the same about Paul Pogba. He's looked happier playing for France for a long time. I wrote that for The Athletic last year. I think it's interesting, Pogba, that he gave that interview to a French publication and not a, a British one. And just take away Paul Pogba, the, the player, and take away his agent. Everything I've ever been told about him, and I've spoke to him, but I don't know him well, echoes what Laurie said. He's a good person. He's a family man. He's someone who takes his religion seriously. You never hear any complaints about him well maybe one or two uh, about his professionalism but by and large he, he, he is uh, very professional and i think he so someone who knows him just said to me a, a year or so ago it, it's like he's given up on trying to win over man united fans he's just given up on that whole idea so he does his best and he feels that fans have already made their mind up on him and i think there's an element of of truth in that uh, it's not a relationship that's worked out His transfer's not really worked out, given how much he cost and how good he is. And even now, we're still having the same debates that go on and on. He's one of the best players in the world on his day. He can do things that no other players in his position can do, but he can also give the ball away and cost Manchester United a game. And he's a liability in in some matches. Cristiano's situation is completely different, but Cristiano's 37 and Paul's, what, about 29 they're at totally different stages in their career
1: victor lindelof is also set to lead his country into a key world cup qualifier later against the czech republic at the friends arena in stockholm manchester united fans know about that stadium of course from the europa league win over ajax a few years ago but also in that match as well what an occasion it could be for anthony alanga making his senior debut for sweden and guys if you're listening in Sweden, in Stockholm, if you go into that match later on, you know what you need to do. We need to hear his song echoing around the Friends Arena. That's it. Thank you to Andy and Laurie for joining us once again on Talk of the Devils. Thank you, you guys, for listening at home. Sweden fans, do us proud later on. See you on the next one. Bye-bye.
4: The Athletic.